0: And welcome to the Plan a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim.
1: And I'm Hal Roster. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture.
0: The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planning and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits.
1: So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us.
0: This podcast is being recorded on November 20th, 2020. For over two decades, Charles King Sadler has immersed himself in the design and care of landscapes throughout North America. This has resulted in his being sought after to work on prestigious public and private properties across North America and being consulted by top landscape practices domestically and abroad. Charles began his career as a visual storyteller in the field of illustration with a degree from Rochester Institute of Technology. He applied his artistic vision and talent, public and private commissions, including contributing newspaper illustrations for publications such as the Los Angeles Times and New York Times. After working in the landscape profession for a period, Charles returned to school at SUNY ESF on the campus of Syracuse University to pursue mas- a master's studies in landscape architecture and he started his own design firm in order to apply his philosophy of design and horticultural care within the design aesthetic. Charles is in an International Society of Arboriculture certified arborist and you can reach Charles at kinggardeninc.com. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast Charles. We're really delighted to have you here today. Well,
2: even how thanks for having me.
0: And we are looking forward to talking to you about protecting trees during construction and the appropriate tree selection, finding root flare and properly planting a tree, which are really important topics to have a tree grow healthy and strong.
2: Yeah, they sure are. I think of all the phases and all the people that are involved and from a tree's inception till when it comes to this final home, whether it's a campus or a residence and our work, we do plenty of restoration. So that's like a pretty general word. Things that can go right at every stage from the grower to the delivery, to the planting, to the care, but they just being people being people. <laughs> and there's not an equal amount of information out there or education. So things often go wrong at one of those stages. And so our work, I mean, we do design also, but uh, it's often being somewhat a a plant doctor and finding out what happened. Was it buried too deep? Was it it buried too deep by the grower or was it when it was first planted or was it over mulched or was it over irrigated (laughs) or was it planted? I guess being planted too high, I would say, is pretty rare, but it's being planted too low. The root flare... Um, when I teach classes, I have a slide that has a wine class. Most people know what a wine class is <laughs> almost in any culture. <laughs> and when it's a morning class, people think, oh boy, this is going to be some class. <laughs> so a traditional wine glass has a nice, the base has a beautiful flare, And so most people can understand the wine glass flares out and the roots are like a pancake. I mean, there's exceptions, but many, when you say, so imagine that pancake where you're walking and driving, the construction vehicle is gonna park on it and all these, and you're gonna pave over that. That pancake is quite sensitive. And I find going through that lens um, exactly gets people's attention. They're like, wow, it's not, the tree is not indestructible. It's actually, that root area is quite sensitive. And then that flare, when you explain that, if this was an acorn that sprouted in the forest, it's gonna sprout almost on the surface and then extend the roots down.
0: That's a really good analogy. I like that. And having a a crystal glass goblet, even better, because crystal can fracture just like a tree root can fracture when you drive something heavy over it. And that kind of gave me a visual as soon as you said that. Oh, a truck or someone walking over it, it becomes that much more fragile. And the more you walk over it, the more fragile it becomes. Uh, so I think that that's, that's a really a, an appropriate analogy when, you, when you're teaching someone about flares. And a lot of people just don't know that topic about a tree. They think that it's, you know, the deeper you bury it, the better it is. And, you know, the classic telephone pole is a no-no because right. telephone poles are dead. They're trees that have been killed and cut and used for telephone poles. They're not living and mm-hmm. we wanna make sure that we don't have telephone poles.
2: Yeah, the flare, I mean, plenty of work we do is shrubs too, it's, and that's a big part of, of any landscape is shrubs. And so finding the root flare, I mean, shrubs can be particularly difficult to find the root flare, because the grower it may have come from a cutting. I mean, we see this, we work with boxwood quite a bit, which, I mean, boxwood has its own issues, But but plenty of times when it's repotted, um it could have been planted deeper again or at planting time so there's there's the root flare and then there's like six inches of soil and then new roots have emerged and so when we when we're taking when a a landscape has failed and we're like deconstructing it we often see so i've even saved that as a sample to see like well this is six inches of extra soil and it didn't die right away which is I guess that sort of perpetuates the misinformation because <laughs> it seems like there's no problem that six years later things die and then there's no, It's a, it appears like it's a mystery.
0: That's a really interesting um, analogy or example of how you can teach people when you have the bare root exposed and allow them to see what has happened over time. I had an incident where I had a, a camellia and it was a huge camellia. It had a trunk of a about maybe six to seven inches or so wow. across and uh, it had spiraling roots it had a knot like a bend in the root and you wondered how this thing was surviving where it wasn't I won't even tell you where it was located because <laughs> it was like a really big faux pas for where it was and I just thought to myself, how could this have even happened with the people that are here who should know better? Right. (laughs) And I think it was because they got it planted from someone else and didn't really excavate the root to see it. And it died off because of spiraling roots, even though it had plenty of room to grow, it died off because of spiraling roots, circling roots.
1: I find like, Charles is an arborist. Eva, you're an arborist. And when three or four arborists have a conversation about proper planning, everyone's nodding their head in agreement. You know, root collars, girdling roots, propagation, and coming out of the nursery pot-bound, and uh, too much soil in a bald and burlap tree. I think the challenge for me is when I start talking to landscape contractors, because they are not going to be quick to nod their head and go, Oh yeah, no, we want to do everything right. I think mechanization, you know, all the great tools of, uh, the spade out in the field that plucks the tree, drops it into a wire basket and sends it on its way. It gets unloaded at the other end, you know, by a mini excavator and plunked in the hole. um, and planted with uh, the wire basket on, the burlap on, and six inches of soil, uh, soil over the original root system. You know, I, I wish I could address a room full of landscape contractors. Because, you know, we talked about the telephone pole. That's the norm. You know, that that's that's ubiquitous and that's the norm is to see the mulch tree in the uh, commercial shopping center parking lot and also on a on a lot of residential properties
0: right so so charles so how do you address that with your clients
2: our first interaction with the clients often a consultation so we walk the property i guess one of my strengths would be to be diplomatic what i like doing is having all the stakeholders there so the lawn person irrigation landscape architect if there's another person arborist landscape contractor so in some cases, you have a pre-meeting with the contractors, <laughs> like who's doing what, <laughs> and then being very diplomatic and not pointing fingers so that doesn't win you any friends. In New York, I have a, a, an SUV that I drive around in, and in Texas, I have a van, and I've got lots of tools. On these consultations, I usually have a, a pair of secateurs on my belt. I've got like a small hand cultivator, and I get right down and I, and I demonstrate. I said, okay, this is the root flare. See, there's fungus forming on the trunk because you got extra mulch. Once you show it, like you can't unsee it. And then the clients, mm-hmm. and they're pointing it out to you. The landscape contractor, the owner, they might, might kind of give you lip service. Like, okay, of course, we'll do it. You're paying the bill. or you're, It's the, the laborers. I try to really win them over, you know, because they're the one. Unfortunately, every time I turn around with some crews, <laughs> they go back to doing it the way they were doing it. I'll pull up an example on my phone. You know, here's, okay, this is the goal. And they'll say, oh, okay. English is often a second language. So that's showing and then reinforcing, giving lots of praise. And I find it does work. It just takes repetition. But then unfortunately, like the next day it might be a different crew, you know? <laughs> so you to yeah. start over. So it's, it's just really sticking to the basics and, and sort of framing it like we work with budgets all the time. Okay, what, instead of saying, what's your budget? I'll say, what's your What are you going to invest in this? And if you think of it like an investment, boy, you want to really care for that tree, give it, it's gonna have a very long life. And so this is how we're gonna do that. It's the proper death. We're gonna find the best supplier, the best person that's gonna care for, that understands. And then I guess there's times to be really blunt, like this is causing a problem, it's gonna kill the tree. If, you know, it's like the balls in your court, and not being afraid to tell the client that like <laughs> we've done our part the contractor that you love he's causing a problem and these plants are going to die and then there's sometimes where the client then says you know you're right other times by pointing out that truth you're asked to drink the hemlock you know like the like the philosopher <laughs> you know and so like I've had clients where we've parted ways, they didn't really want the truth. They love the contractor or whoever the person was. <laughs> and I guess that's okay too. It's a big world. You know, there's plenty of other opportunities.
0: I think that not everybody wants to do the right thing. They just want to do it fast. Right. And they want to do it for low bid. And that's something else that we were talking about, even in in discussions with other professionals. That's seems to be The norm, if you will, to, you know, the low bid is, can also be detrimental. And, you know, thinking about a tree and its value, you know, when we buy a car and we take it off the parking lot at a a car dealership, it loses values as soon as it leaves the parking lot. But when you bring a tree onto your site, it starts to increase in value. And we don't look at things like that. We don't talk enough about that. Value that a tree provides over time, and I think that um, I think that our profession is getting more savvy when it comes to that because they're looking at how we value a tree and what is the actual number uh, given off by that tree, whether it's in stormwater management, whether it's in heating and cooling costs, whether it's in
1: Psychological value.
0: psychological value, and there was a really good study in I think it was Michigan or Wisconsin after the Emerald ash came through. And they were able to do a study in reverse. They had all their medical records of human health and and psychology. And they decided that they were going to take the records a couple years after the emerald ash trees were gone and look at the health records and what, was the, what were the benefits of those trees wow. um, before and after. And what they found out was that there was a 30% increase in mental health problems oh my God. after the trees had been removed. Now, if you think of that, 30% increase in mental health issues that's nothing to sneeze at that is huge hugely um alarming uh, from a from a professional standpoint but also from a health standpoint from a, a national standpoint uh, what are we doing to ourselves well that insect did it to us but we can also do that to ourselves by clear cutting areas and going in and do building developments and wiping the slate clean and not saving anything that's on the site uh, those are things that I think about all the time. And and that also goes to our, our topic about, you know, protecting trees in construction sites.
2: Oh, right. I sat in, I, you know, the artwork takes us to different states sometimes. So before I lived in Texas, I was here doing, I, w- I work in a couple different cities and the the arborist that hired me, he had a like an emergency meeting call where he was a consultant. And so boy, I sat in on it was quite uh, the high power, the landscape architects were from Boston. The architects were from LA. We were in a Texas city. And it was a piece of property that was gonna be a high-end residence. And there were pecan trees that are very revered in Texas.
0: Mm-hmm, sure, there sure are. And
2: this a uh, board certified arborist that hired me to do a, a boxwood training with him, uh, his crew. Uh, and so they were gonna air spade and use structural soil and so and this, they're going to build concrete piers more or less around this grove of pecan trees which, in which a house was going to be built on. It was a large grove. So there was plenty of spaces between the trees, but the level of detail, I mean, it's when you have that, and they had, uh, it was almost like a Frank Gehry, like that wasn't the architect, but it was a Frank Gehry, like uh, 3d modeling of the trees and of the roots. And mm-hmm. uh, so when you put mines together, so they were going to protect these gorgeous, you know, trees that, that are like of the place, they are of Texas. <laughs> and so the work, the projects that I work on aren't usually that glamorous, but it's, it's meeting the contractor. Sometimes there's another arborist, the homeowner, and having way before construction, having a plan. And so there's, I mean, so key parts of protection are fencing around the tree and having the fence be so difficult that you cannot remove it. Like, so you have... A, you rent a metal fence, uh, or it's very substantial. You know, there's all these funny pictures you'll see on the internet of, <laughs> there's a, like a light fence. Uh, and then there's like stacks of bricks inside or their pickup trucks are inside the fence or it's just absurdity, you know, so it, yeah. you a gate so you can get into the fence. Uh, so the fencing is very important. I was part of a, of a conference. It was out of the Pacific Northwest on this subject of tree protection during construction. And what some people are doing, you can you can figure the value of the tree, there's different systems, and then having a sign made and say, this bald cypress mm-hmm. is worth $11,500 based on and having that right on the construction fence. And the workers are going to work every day, seeing that. And then you can have a bond set up and say, if that tree is damaged, you're paying $11,500. Sure. And then doing these construction meetings where you really educate everybody, that that protection zone. This is why it's important. Again, like getting people to buy in.
0: That's interesting. Um, I was one of the universities, and they said, well, they could never charge a, a fee for violating a fence. And that's because they found that the company turns around and slaps that fee back onto The school, the university. So uh, I'm thinking to myself, well, how else can you do it? It has to be a metal fence. It cannot be plastic. And I have photos of the plastic cyclone fences that had been downed and like you were saying, blocks. And in one case, I have a picture of concrete piping that was put right on top of the root zone of the tree because it was a plastic fence. They just it on the plastic fence and right behind and right behind and right in the, in the TPZ zone. So you, you just think to yourself, okay, what's wrong with this scenario? And I think here in the United States, I feel like we are not conscious enough and not as mindful as they are in Europe. Because when I was living in Europe, they, they were very mindful of that. You know, even the access of how something comes onto a property and leaves a property uh, the environmental impact assessment. You know, what is that impact? What is, it, what is it that you don't want to have happen? And, you know, why are you trying to limit that impact? And and how does that affect the overall tree? Even the fact that, you know, when you cut a tree root, it's better to have a clean cut than to have a, a torn cut, for example, uh, because it loses more moisture and kind of creates all kinds of problems with disease and so those are the kind of things you think about and you turn around and you say well would you want a doctor to just pull out whatever it is that you have a problem with and just <laughs> leave it open right. not sew you up <laughs> those are the kind of things and like we used to be called we used to be called tree surgeons years ago
2: oh, that term almost and makes me uncomfortable when I see that because it's
0: tree surgeons and it was, it was the reason why they called them tree surgeons was because they wanted people to know that trees were living breathing beings once we got away from that we forgot that
2: you know like a couple other with construction things that come to mind which you folks know i'm sure is having a washout zone for concrete so when you're making concrete having a designated and that can be right on a site plan whether it's a residence or a commercial large scale so that's that's really valuable something what's going to create waste I mean, I try to bring some reverence, some spirituality to it, but this is like a living being thing. And, yeah. you know, you have a designated spot for the work trailer, designated for debris, concrete, and being thorough, that that will save time. Another thing I learned in another seminar was when an excavator or any kind of machine on the bucket, it, it can be a straight blade or it can be with claws. So if you're using a straight blade, is more efficient. But what some of the arborists suggest, let's say you're, doing, you're digging a swimming pool, which is the most popular thing these days in landscape design. <laughs> if the bucket has claws on it, it's going to more gradually cut through the soil. And then if there's roots, the roots will become apparent. And then once you see them, then you can get down and, and cut them. Where if you go, like with the, if this is a straight blade, you're going to basically slice it. And then the roots are going to, like you could tear a big root. So I've used that on, on some jobs where I've explained that to the operator and they say, oh, sure, no problem. I got two buckets. I'm happy to they're going around the tree. You know, it's like phase one is with the with the claws. And then once we're all the roots are clear, which is really just the first couple of feet, usually for most of them. Yeah. Then you can go oh. crazy with the, the other bucket.
1: Sure. How did the um, project work out with the pecan trees in Texas? Did that how home get built and are the trees happy and thriving i'm not sure actually because i was just part of that first meeting you know i didn't i didn't
2: stay involved that way it was just a happenstance but but it was quite because i think of urban at cornell um structural Structural soil soil. i mean it's like for urban situations but it was so clever of the other arborist you know to think to think of that and then the monitoring that's that's another component is building into the budget is someone going to visit once a week? Is it is an arborist going to visit every day? And then documenting that, sort of like part of the whole cost. You know, it's it's like you can write this plan that's going to be X amount of money and they, oh, well, we don't need you to visit. Well, the plan is sort of meaningless unless someone is there, unfortunately,
1: to educate. You know, I'm sure you've had that situation. It's, it's not comfortable and it's extremely unsatisfying when you, the arborist gets called in <clears throat> But the project's already, and the design has already been implemented and is in progress. So now you're looking at a root zone and you're looking at a proposed cut that's well within the critical root zone. And they basically want you to sign off on, we need to make this excavation right here. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And there are no options at this point other than to say, this is risky. I wish you had called me three months ago or last year. Instead, you know, I'm looking at a six-inch diameter root that now has to be cut, and there's a pretty good chance that it is going to impact the health of the of this tree. Mm-hmm. Like doing like pre-treatments too. I haven't suggest that there's so many swimming
2: pool projects going on, and so I, okay, we're going to do uh, beneficial pruning, structural pruning, make sure the tree, we're going to treat it. Get this tree as healthy as possible. <laughs> In Texas here, the the shade is so sacred. It's so darn hot. And so people love their trees much more so than in the Northeast, where people love trees. But in Texas, it's the average person has more of a reverence for the tree because it means being outside or not being outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so on swimming pool c- consulting work, they had a designer, but they said, this is where we want the pool. Is this going to impact the trees? And so I did the calculations. I said, yeah, this one tree is... It already has problems there's like girdling roots and it's going to impact this one the most but instead of being the pool being deep into the lawn it could be shallow along the home and that would be like you're saying ideally the arborist is involved early in the process because those customers they just want those trees that was more important than the swimming pool yeah but people you know poor people everyone's at home these days and the pool is <laughs> is a way to enjoy the outdoor so there's There's always a solution, like with good design, good arboriculture, there's always a way through it.
1: Yeah, I've been looking more and more into this, uh, and I'm not anywhere close to understanding this concept of climate equity, but you just kind of touched on it, you know, and I can only imagine what a Texas summer is um, hotter and much drier than what we have in Philadelphia. But it's interesting to hear that people are aware and desire the cooling effects of trees. And also, it sounds like a certain portion of the population that can afford to put a swimming pool in. I mean, that's, that's pretty luxurious and, and wonderful. And at the same time, you know, from my standpoint, it's like, yeah, and this is a segment of the population that is going to kind of create some comfort for themselves. Whereas tomorrow, my son and I are going to be helping out with a local tree planting initiative. And I know we're going into one of the poorest neighborhoods of Philadelphia mm-hmm. to uh, plant bare root trees where, you know, canopy is, is so minimal. I'm trying to be neutral here with politics, but there's a little bit of it creeping in. Yeah, the shade equity. I mean, you. I've read studies on that
2: too, like I think it was Los Angeles, I mean, the if you look at the real estate values, the high real estate, they have plenty of shade and the low real estate don't. So it's, there's exciting, I mean, in your city and in Baltimore, out of um, where Yale is at New Haven, incredible grassroots um, NGOs, often nonprofits that are doing incredible work where they're getting local young people um, at some of the tree conferences, I meet them. You know, so it's educating Uh, It's providing jobs. It's it's providing shade and canopy in in neighborhoods that don't have it.
1: It, Absolutely. And and, uh, one of the biggest benefits is, you know, you touched on the the spiritual component, the community cohesion that is created on a nice fall day when you're digging out uh, in a three by four out of a sidewalk and properly planting Uh a, a bare root tree. It's, it really raises uh, optimism and and uh, positivity. There was a neat program, um, you folks in you
2: know New York City, so near Philadelphia. There's a lot of back and forth in that professional community, and of course for entertainment. So that Million Trees program in New York City, plenty of those people are Yale forestry. That like under it was Mayor Bloomberg initiated it, but there was all these people like us that were doing the footwork. And so I've sat in on quite a few of those lectures and those those folks. So when that started, they said, if you want a tree, you submit a request. So it was request-based to start with. That led to more, the people that were requesting it already had tree. No, they could use more trees, but the neighborhood, it was not need-based. It was request-based. And what they ended up doing is they shifted it to need-based, which, I mean, it sounds like common sense now, but. They were assessing what neighborhoods don't have shade trees <laughs> and those are the neighborhoods we're giving first priority to and those mm-hmm. were i mean stressed neighborhoods people that were economic they were just hanging on they're not going to put a request in for a tree when they're just trying to feed their family
0: i know that the pennsylvania horticulture society um, will target a neighborhood and then what they'll do is they'll send out flyers to the people who live there for example like in germantown when when things were really not looking so great they uh went into that community in Philadelphia and targeted that for planting. And they they didn't want anybody that didn't want a tree. They wanted people who wanted a tree. And that way they would nurture the tree over time. There were a lot of people who they were surprised (laughs) wanted a tree. It was was so successful that they targeted that neighborhood again. But the Girl Scouts helped plant them and uh, they had fabulous results You can already see the results of that down the line after, I guess, about 10 years. That's really the way to do it. Target an area that is low income and go around and ask the people, would you like a tree? If they want a tree, give them a tree. Right,
2: having that buy-in is always so important. And it takes, I mean, it's part of this, education is part of the sales process. Sometimes it's like it's selling our two-year-old that he needs to have his breakfast, you know? It's like, so it could be selling when um, I mean, having diagrams, like having the shade tree, because there's always objections to it's going to be litter. Oh, it's going to, you know, going to stain my car. I'm going to slip on the sidewalk from the Magnolia or whatever the objections are the sweet gum, you know, the, like I'll have that in a design meeting when the contractor's there. I'll say, oh, the sweet gum is beautiful fall color, a native species. And the contractors think oh it's gonna be such a mess to pick up and i said well i mean it's when you go to a restaurant you don't say i'm not gonna order mashed potatoes because they're messy i mean it's you know it's like there's people here to clean the landscape it's not excessively a problem and so this idea of like a sanitized landscape um mother nature is not it's not sanitized and perfectly neat
0: (laughs) well the other thing is that anything that falls off a tree decomposes I mean, if you look at some of the places in the city and the trash is just so atrocious, I said, "No, who's dirtier, the tree or the people?" Yeah,
2: that's a good point. And that's,
0: <laughs> that, that's what I always say. what about the trash that's here? Well, my daughter moved into an area in South Philadelphia, and it was—I I looked at the street when she bought the house. I was like. I said, are you going to do a, a a sweep every week of the block? I said, because this is like, there's too much trash. And she goes, oh, mom, come on. Well, she wasn't even in the house for a week, and she was already cleaning the sidewalks. And she was, oh, the trees are so messy. And then she started cleaning up other people's trash. And she said, oh, my trees are great. It's the <laughs> people around me. I said, see, I told you, it's so- all the other trash. It's the smelly stuff, the trashy stuff that's not desirable
1: one little easy fix with sweet gums I guess we're all sweet gum fans is just rake the spiny balls into a nice radius circle around the tree it's it's an instant mulch they break down in a year yep. and uh, it's a nice look and you don't have to you know crank up the blower and cart them all away but you know it's interesting we've We've hit on two or three kind of institutions in the United States. We started our discussion talking about landscape contractors and and poor planting process. And we jumped over to, you know, the low-income row house neighborhoods where you're really kind of counting on the organized block captain and block organization or a neighborhood organization for, for tree planting. There's really a variety of issues here as we kind of keep this urban forestry, the urban forest, healthy and vital in all these markets, all these big cities, suburbs included across the nation. Yeah, the education, the diversity. I mean, it's funny that principle if something is
2: true, then it ought to be true in every situation. So, like, <laughs> diversity is good. The clients we work for, they often, they have investments. So we say, you don't have everything in one stock, of course. Of course not. Well, to plant like a half a mile hedge, that's a little risky. You know, it's like, it can be a naturalistic. We have crab apples and viburnum and boxwood. And I mean, that's true with employees. You know, everybody has different strengths. So having that diversity, I find working that and with street trees, that's true. I mean, it's enough diversity. When you read the, the biography of each major U.S. city, even small cities it's often like three or four species is what is dominant and so that's pretty dangerous that's why there's been the american elm the american chestnut uh on and on so having now the ash the ash so having the diversity doesn't mean that you can't have like whatever that favorite tree is but it's saying let's have one block of that and then, another, then the next block is something else that there's, it's not either or. I think that's always the point. People often get defensive and, like, I want my so-and-so, I like, think we can still have that, but let's also have <laughs> a little variety.
0: And I think I like your, I, I, your example of stock. Mm-hmm. That's a great example of, uh, yeah, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You want to put them around and diversify. And I think that that's an important thing about, about um tree and tree planting and selection
1: I wanted to jump back if i could one quick question charles because uh it's been perplexing and a challenge for me with all the work you've done on construction sites have you ever seen any cool strategies for the temporary road for equipment to get in and out on a, a larger site that happens to be near a tree oh uh, good question And some of my mentors um
2: in the New York, you might know him, uh, Wayne Cahilly. He, you know, gets around and talks. Oh to yeah, the arborist. he's a great what person. an arborist, unbelievable, knowledgeable. Yeah, really um, I call him occasionally. I haven't used this myself to the full extent, but he said it worked fantastic. I think there were these, you know, in the in the Northeast, these heritage European beech trees that are on these old campuses, or they're just, you know, breathtaking. And those the beech roots are so sensitive to disturbance. They put down wood chips and might have been extensive, like six or eight inches deep. Right. And they created a construction road. The wood chips were wider than the road by a little bit. If money was no object, you could use steel plates, like you like when they do road construction, or you could use plywood or versa mats. And so the mulch dispersed the weight. The wood chips are I mean, almost free and <laughs> right. require a skilled labor to spread them and then the other materials you're more or less like renting they had absolutely no problems so so i recommend the wood chips work pretty well they're easier to get rid of the gravel i mean that helps from compaction but it's you kind of have gravel for the rest of the landscape's life (laughs) you never get rid of that you can see photos you can see uh, 10 years ago i could see where that road was it's the grass (laughs) you can still see it yeah
0: I've heard of about 12 inches used in some locations uh, where, the, where the tree roots would be really sensitive, uh, and and make sure that you aerate the trees before and after you oh. do that chipping, so that if there is any little bit of compaction, they, are, they already have been aerated ahead of time.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. a good idea. And then monitoring during the work, too, someone that knows the area at the site.
0: And keeping trucks off of the regular soil, which so you know, sometimes people have a tendency of just, well, I'll just pull over here, or I'll just pull over here. And you just can't just pull over anywhere. Uh, there, there needs to be very strict mandates for that so that people don't go off the trail.
2: Right, kind of like a designated parking area. Yeah. Even properties where they had a pretty young fruit orchard, they transplanted some of the trees to another area they created a construction parking area with gravel, and then they undid it after the, after the construction. That seemed to work, those trees are doing pretty well. These construction roads. And if you think of putting down gravel, it's if it's an area that you may want to have some kind of access in the future, that makes sense too. So maybe it's not the most direct way, but this intervention is probably going to have a long-term effect
0: <laughs> right.
2: in sites where they say, well, we'll have this maybe a dirt road you know it's a biggest biggest state or big property we don't really see it so it could have multiple benefits i mean having these construction meetings is so helpful with all these stakeholders i like doing that for design where i'm thinking i want to put some spirea here and then the person i said no for snow removal where do you put the snow and then having them chime in oh that's the only place i can put the snow well let's have ornamental grasses instead they can handle the snow
0: I've seen a lot of trees destroyed, I mean, old, hundred-year-old trees destroyed because of where they put the snow in the wintertime, Mm. and that's something that a good landscape management plan should have, which here in this country we still have not become acquainted with landscape management plans like they do in Europe. I know uh, Harvard has a really good one at the Arnold Arboretum, and Berkeley, UC Berkeley, has a really good one. Some communities in the Midwest have really great ones, but that should be on everybody's radar. Having a good landscape management plan will tell you where people can park, how snow is moved around the site, where it's gonna be put. And that way your heritage trees are not disturbed. Losing two heritage trees is too, too many. Right. Because of
2: snow load. And then reassessing too, like as the program changes, like if there's maybe there's a sports field, it's like, well, in many municipalities that I see or work with, particularly in the Hudson Valley, where it's hilly. So there's not a lot of flat areas. So they're continually making more sports fields. And so just a reassessing, like, is it, you want to have a sports field, Is going to have an impact and then weighing the pros and cons. I mean, just sort of being honest, like you need it. Now, What if it was outside town half a mile? People are going to probably drive anyways. Oh yeah, well there's, that's a cornfield and it doesn't have heritage
1: trees.
0: Exactly, it's common sense
1: about common sense. Hey, Charles. Sometimes we phrase this question, what's your favorite tree? But I want to alter that a little bit since you're so engaged with the planning process. Since so much of what, how we view the work uh, on our podcast is, you know, trees in the age of the climate crisis. Anything tweaking you and giving you optimism as far as uh, uh, maybe expanding their use? you know, one, again, one genus in particular species that you'd like to see more of? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, oaks are, there's plenty of oaks in
2: the landscape, but boy, it is so diverse. Um, on our own podcast, my wife and I do that together and, She's like the straight person and I'm like the horticulturalist. So she asked questions, you know, that the average person would want to know. Remember she said, well, there are oaks, you know, in the desert and we're next to Mexico. And I said, I don't think there's oaks. I think that's the one place there's not oaks. I was wrong. There's like 160 species in Mexico. Exactly right. So a neat development that you folks, I mean, maybe it's in the nursery trade or maybe not quite yet. So there's the Morton Arboretum. And then there's Nina Bassick at Cornell, and they're doing really exciting research with hybridizing Mexican oaks. The John Ferry Garden, actually, in Texas is a destination near Houston. They have a a very large collection of Mexican oaks from collecting trips, and that's a public garden. You want a, a white oak or red oak or plants that are part of the cultural tradition of the temperate climate, and so those might be jeopardized by climate change, so they're hybridizing those with Mexican oaks. to me that's very exciting. Um, I love it. Here in Texas it's almost a monoculture with live oaks that's like used in development and so those get very broad but there's the Mexican white oak the the willow oak that's an exciting oak Uh, I think that could be used more there's shrub oaks I would say the white oak that is that gets my heart and my heart is The white oak has my heart. Now it's not a great street tree, but in a park or a campus. So I think oaks are, are so adapted to extremes.
0: It doesn't make a difference whether you're in the Northeast or in Texas. Oaks can be found, both locations. I mean,
2: that I think the oak is, I mean, the invasive species, they're poised for climate change when there's a disturbance, but the oaks are, the oaks are conservative. They tend to grow slowly. They don't leaf out right away. So I think that approach, that conservativism, can be well suited to extreme weather. You know, like a maple, let's say the maple's the first at the party, you know, the leaves blasting out, big giant leaves. <laughs> uh, and then there's a drought, that's a big, it's a big risk. So we've used the bur oak um on Long Island, where there's, you know, with more extreme weather, there's hurricanes and flooding and salt water. And so the bur oak is a species that's saltwater tolerant. It's not gonna grow on the beach, but So that's been exciting research to say, I want to plant a tree on this property that's going to be here for generations. What would that be? I think thinking in those terms.
0: And I like the fact that you're talking about slow growers, because uh, slow growers means that they're going to take a long time before they start to reproduce, too. Uh, Many of the oaks will take uh, 80 to 100 years before they'll start producing if if they live to 2,000 years old, because they don't want to have to produce from the time they pop out so they'll wait about a hundred years some (laughs) even 500 depending on how how long their lifespan is Boy,
2: fascinating fascinating. yeah so the oak has lots of opportunities i'd say and the leaf sizes so i mean some of these um i guess subtropic oaks that they're going to hybridize the leaf is uh tiny you know it's like the like the size of your thumb uh it's, it's well suited to urban trees it's not a big, giant red oak leaf that would produce lots of litter.
0: Well, it was really delightful having you on our show, and we hope that you can come back real soon. Uh, The topics are, are relevant to today, and I think they're going to be even more relevant as time marches on because we do have to be mindful of the construction, trees around construction. We want to protect our assets and also protect our young assets when we put them in the ground, making sure that their root flares are visible and making sure they're not planted too deep. Uh, So thank you very much, Charles, for coming.
1: I'm jealous because Charles gets to see the climate crisis, not only in the Northeast, out on Long Island, but then he gets to go to Texas. So it's either flooding or hurricanes. He's our frontline reporter of oh, those extreme so. weather people, right, with
2: their, their coats blowing off. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure to be with you folks, and I do look forward to returning. Thank you very yeah. much.
0: Thanks so much. We really do appreciate Thanks, it.
1: Thanks, Charles. It's been great.